At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And I'm Elena. As real estate agents, moms, and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, y'all, we're back. Well, actually, I'm back today. Today, it is just me, Heather, and we are doing something a little different. Welcome to our first ever Crime Estate mini-sode. Now, these mini-sode episodes are going to feature true crime and real estate that's either been in the news this week, or they'll feature an update on a crime estate we've brought you in the past. But I know you're asking, why a mini-sode from time to time? Well, if you have been listening to us from the beginning, you know that we are busy working moms and moms are never busier than in the summer months when we are juggling kids being out of school, camps that for some reason only run nine to noon, vacations, and of course, our actual full-time jobs. So as you might imagine, we have found it difficult to be all in the same place at the same time a lot this summer, but we did not want to leave you, our crime estate loving fans, without your weekly episode. And I have a very interesting one for you today. So let's head to Long Island and chat about all that's happened in the last week or so in the Gilgo Beach murders. In case you've been on vacation and not paying attention to the news this week, let me give you a short recap. This is an over-decade-old murder mystery that actually starts with the disappearance of Shannon Gilbert in May of 2010. Now, Shannon was a part-time escort who had gone to Oak Beach in Long Island to meet with a new client. And it's important to the story to note that Shannon had a history of bipolar disorder, and her family says that she struggled with depression and mood swings. But really, from all accounts, she was doing pretty well and was trying to improve her quality of life, you know, both for herself and her boyfriend with the money that she made from being an escort. And she seemed to be pretty smart and savvy about how she went about her escort business. She always brought a driver along to ensure her safety. So on the night in question, both Shannon and her client called this driver throughout the evening. First, Shannon called, requested that the driver go to get additional, um, let's just call them additional party supplies. But given the hour of the night and the remote location in Oak Beach, he didn't leave. But later in the evening, the client called the driver and told him that Shannon refused to leave his house. What happens after this gets a little murky, but it appears that Shannon, in fear of her life for some unknown reason, calls 911 and then leaves the house, running through the dark neighborhood to escape. Her cell phone is still on the line and open with 911, but she doesn't know exactly where she is and she's unable to provide them with a location. However, the dispatcher can hear her banging on doors in the neighborhood and begging for help. One door was opened around 5 a.m. by Gus Coletti, an older retired gentleman. And sensing her distress, he calls 911 from his phone and tells Shannon just to sit down and wait for the police. 
but she takes off running, at one point even hiding under Coletti's boat, and then deciding to continue to flee. Now, both the client and Shannon's driver seem to be genuinely concerned for her, and a search ensues. And despite the fact that her initial call to 911 was made at 4.51 a.m., a subsequent call from Mr. Coletti was made at 5.21 a.m., and a third 911 call is made from another neighbor to report a woman banging on her front door before the police arrive at 5.40 a.m., authorities are unable to find the terrified Shannon Gilbert. Now, let me just stop right here and say that the police never considered the client a person of interest in her disappearance. And for that reason, you know, I've left him unnamed in the retelling of the story. But I think it's important to note that he did go to the police along with her boyfriend following her disappearance to encourage them to look for her. And it's this ongoing search for Shannon Gilbert that leads police to discover four bodies of young females in the marshes surrounding Gilgo Beach approximately seven months after Shannon disappeared. Investigators are able to determine that all four women are online escorts. And these ladies were later identified as Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who disappeared on July 9, 2007, Melissa Bartholomew, who disappeared July 12, 2009, Megan Waterman, who disappeared June 6, 2010, and Amber Costello, who disappeared September 2, 2010. In his book, Lost Girls, an Unsolved American Mystery, journalist and author Bob Kolker says, The story of these women is the story about a part of America where people have few options and where some people make desperate or risky decisions. And unfortunately, when these women disappeared, an apathy from detectives towards these sex worker victims was apparent and hampered the search to find the victims. Melissa Bartholomew's mother said that when she contacted the police about her daughter's disappearance, they said, quote, she's a hooker. She's a prostitute. She was, she's an escort. We're not going to assign a detective to this. But something changed quickly that really should have made the investigators take more notice into Melissa's disappearance. A week after she disappeared, her younger sister, Amanda, who was only 15 at the time, received a call from Melissa's cell phone. Now, my heart goes out to Amanda every time I hear this story. Imagine how thrilled she was. You know, she thought her sister was calling her after days of not being able to locate Melissa. But instead of it being Melissa, it was actually her killer calling to taunt the family. He proceeded to call Amanda's phone eight more times over the course of the next few weeks. Unfortunately, although the authorities were able to trace some of the calls to locations in Midtown Manhattan, the caller always hung up before he could be identified. But it's this hubris that was the start of the killer's downfall and the beginning of the events that led to the arrest of Rex Hewerman this week. And let's talk about Rex Hewerman for a minute. By all accounts, Rex was a pretty successful architect who was skilled in navigating New York City's building codes on behalf of his clients. He describes himself as an architectural troubleshooter And reading between the lines, sounds like he knows how to work with the city inspectors to get things done. In a lifestyle-type interview with a local New York real estate company, Huerman gives an interview where he describes how he helps his clients navigate the building codes. I'm going to play a short clip of that interview for you now. 
you know, where you're from and how long you've been in New York. Okay. Um, Rex Ewerman, I'm an architect. I'm an architectural consultant. I'm a troubleshooter. Born and raised on Long Island. Okay. Been um, working in Manhattan since 1987. Oh, wow. Very long time. Okay. So uh, this brings uh, directly to my first question. So, you know, can you explain to our audience what is it that you do, not the architect part of your business, but the other part of the business, which is it's my understanding that you're kind of a facilitator with the Department of Building. Is that correct? But please tell us. That's correct, but much more. Okay, <laughs> what that's I the do, much more I'm interested. I do troubleshooting, architectural troubleshooting, and negotiations with the building department. Okay. What I mean by that is, do we do the standard stuff with the building department? Um, handle your filings. Um, I have other clients who are a lot of other architects, mm -hmm. and we'll handle their interactions with the building department, Yeah. especially out-of-city architects, because... They're a little afraid of the city. And when, city. <laughs> when a job that should have been routine yeah. suddenly becomes not routine, yeah. I get the phone call. Gotcha. Whether it's an old building and they need somebody that understands and can maneuver the 1938 building code or the current building code. You look surprised when I say 1938 yeah, building 1938 code. Building, uh, yeah. um, I've actually used the 1901 old tenement laws here in the city of New York, and you can legally do so. Oh, wow. That's one of the little things that, that you do. people don't always understand when it comes to building codes. Yeah, yeah. They never read the administrative section. <laughs> This job uh, taught you about yourself? I think it's taught me more about how to understand people because dealing with the technical aspects yeah. is something a person can learn. <laughs> mm -hmm. You go to school and through an architectural program, you work for the experience of doing architecture you get your license to practice yeah, yeah as your time goes on you learn about the buildings and about the codes and the different buildings of time frames i'm dealing with a building from the 1880s right now you know mm -hmm. how they react but it's the people how they're all so different and how you deal with the people i think is one of the more interesting aspects that have come out of this. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. My last question. If you were a tool or an object to help you uh, in your, uh, to help you to bring your business to greater heights, what would it be? One of the things I learned from my father was furniture building. Okay. He was an aerospace engineer and built satellites and runs in the family, yeah, building <laughs> things. <laughs> and <laughs> built furniture at home. And I still build it in the same exact workshop. So I have one tool that pretty much used in almost every job. And it's actually a cabinet maker's hammer. Cabin oh, okay. Cabinet maker hammer. Okay. It is 
persuasive enough when I need to persuade something. <laughs> Not it, someone. Something. <laughs> <laughs> and it always yields excellent results. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the project, whatever piece of furniture or what I'm working on, it always helps it come out beautifully. Okay, great. So you would be kind of a, that kind of hammer for your uh, for your business. That's what you're saying. You if have that doesn't exist. That's what you would be. Sometimes I have to be the. <laughs> Heavy framing hammer? <laughs> Other times I'm the lightweight hammer just to <laughs> nudge things along. All right. I guess it's a hammer. Okay. Well, that was chilling. Um, thank you all for bearing with me as I sort of stitch some pieces of that video together. The whole video is about 20 minutes long. So I'll link it in the show notes if you want to listen to it in its entirety. But, you know, it's clear from listening to that interview that Huerman really thinks very highly of himself. And knowing that the cause of death of the women found on Gilgo Beach was, you know, homicidal violence, it's really disconcerting to hear him describe his tool of choice in that clip. All right, so... We've established that Huerman is a well-respected architect. Now, we haven't released this episode yet, so consider this a little bit of a sneak peek. But we recently recorded an episode on Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, one of the most regarded architects of our time. And if I know anything about architects who take pride in their work, it's that they consider their personal homes a showcase of their talents. So it's interesting to me that the home Rex lives in at 105 First Avenue in Massapequa Park is really run down and dilapidated. We have photos up on our website, crimeestate.com, and of course on our social media accounts. So take a look and let us know what you think. It is not the home one would expect after listening to Huerman talk about his profession. Now, the Hewerman family says that the police tore the house apart while conducting a search of the property, including cutting into the bathtub and digging up the backyard and greenhouse. But looking at the photos, in addition to being torn apart, it also looks like something from an episode of Hoarders. The clutter in every room is unreal, and there is way too much stuff in the house for a home of its size. According to an episode of the podcast LISK, The Long Island Serial Killer, Police used a LIDAR technology to map the crime scene. Now, I wasn't familiar for this. It stands for light detection and ranging. And this technique allows police to create highly accurate digital models of crime scenes. It's really a non-intrusive way for them to get a picture, but also prevent the contamination of the scene. And it can help officers and lawyers and maybe future jury members walk through the scene at any time, even years later. And it sort of made me think about, you know, as a realtor, I've used 3D imaging to provide virtual walkthroughs and floor plans for years. You know, especially during COVID, we were doing all sorts of virtual walkthroughs. But this is definitely a large step above that kind of technology. And I'm sure we'll see it become something that is regularly used at crime scenes. Now, going back to the state of the house, I found an interesting interview with Catherine Shepard. She is an interior designer who worked with Huerman on some of his projects, and he also hired her to help him with a kitchen remodel at the house on First Avenue in Massapequa Park in 2005. And in addition to that kitchen remodel, he wanted her to do a floor plan of the entire house. 
But while at the property, Rex refused to let her into a 12 by 15 room of the house that was locked, saying that it contained guns. Indeed, investigators found over 200 guns when they searched the Hewerman house this week. Shepard thought it was odd at the time, but in retrospect, she's even more suspicious of what Humerman kept in that locked room in the basement of his home. Now, in my research on this story, I have seen varying reports about when Humerman purchased this home. Some reports say that it's the same house he grew up in. Others say he purchased it in April of 1994 for $170,000. From what I can find in the property records, Hewerman's mother, Dolores Hewerman, was also on the deed to the property at one point. So I really think both are true. I think it's his family home that he either refinanced or purchased in the early to mid-1990s. A neighbor by the name of Curly corroborated my theory to CBS News, which quotes him as saying, He's been here since he was a child. I've been here since I was a child. I bought my parents' house. He bought his parents' house. So we are old-time neighbors. And of course, in that full clip of the interview, Hewerman talks about how he still builds furniture in the same workshop his dad built furniture in years ago. Now, originally built in 1956, this property is a one-story ranch-style home with shaker shingle siding and a full basement totaling 1323 square feet. According to Zillow, which, side note, you should absolutely not use as your source for pricing your house— but we're going to use it here for lack of my access to the New York uh, City Multiple Listing Service. The property's current estimated value is around $635,000. And this home is located in the neighborhood of Massapequa Park, which is only about 15 miles away from where the bodies of the four women were found. Now, residents of Massapequa Park say it is a relatively safe neighborhood, home to many police officers and firemen. And while most of the homes in the neighborhood are well-kept, the Hewerman's home was run down. Hewerman kept a TV on his front porch that he watched while chopping wood in the front yard, and wood was always stacked around the yard for Hewerman's uh, various building projects. Now, the town is not surprisingly reeling from the news that a suspected serial killer lived in their midst. Police have the house on a 24-hour surveillance, and there is discussion that the city may purchase the home and bulldoze it. Another neighbor told the New York Post, I can't wait for them to tear this down. I've been staring at this eyesore for 31 years. In addition to the crimes and property near Gilgo Beach, investigators are looking into other disappearances and deaths of escorts in Las Vegas, where Humerman owns a timeshare at a Club de Soleil property. That was purchased in 2005, and the website says it offers the taste of a lavish European lifestyle in the middle of Las Vegas. Located on West Tropicana Avenue, we are just a few minutes from the world-famous Las Vegas Strip. They're also looking into any unsolved homicides matching this MO in South Carolina, where Humerman owns a plot of land and plan to retire. Now, you know, on this podcast, we're interested in how a person's real estate can be intertwined with a crime. And I really think there's a lot left to learn about what happened in and around the properties owned by Rex Humerman. But obviously, we can't do the entire story of these women justice in a minisode. So if you want to take a deep dive into the Long Island serial killer case, I'd recommend the podcast Lisk, The Long Island Serial Killer, and episodes 313 and 322 of the podcast Going West, which is one of my favorites, along with the book The Lost Girls, which we quoted earlier. 
I'm not pulling my pocketbook out for this property, and I hope the town can do something to make it less of an obvious memory of the crime for the Humerman extended family whose lives have been torn upside down over the last two weeks, and for that of the community of Massapequa Park. Well, that's it for this mini-sode. I'll be back next week with Alana and Melanie for an in-depth dive into another crime state. Of course, if you find yourself looking forward to next week's episode, we hope you'll give us a five-star rating and a review on Spotify or Apple Podcast and tell your friends or maybe even your podcast clubs about our little show. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.